there's that saying, fear is a dream killer. And I think a lot of times we don't end up even doing the little things because we're scared. I stopped talking in class. Like I know what it feels like not to have a voice. I know what it feels like to be forgotten about. I know what it feels like to be marginalized. Fear keeps us from doing even the little things. How do we develop the means to share our voice in our own special way? What responsibility do we have for those whose voice has been silenced or forgotten about? In this episode, founder and CEO of One Girl Revolution, Kate Bryan, shows us what we can learn when we listen to authentic experiences of everyday people. All women, no matter who they are, no matter where they're from, no matter what their quote unquote, their issue, right? Like supported one another and like even just like saw each other as human beings and said like, even if I disagree with you on something, let's stand together and like, let's be a voice. When we set aside our differences and empower one another to share, we set in motion the stories that can transform the world. This is Living the Call. Kate Bryan, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I am so looking forward to this conversation. Yeah, well, you know, the uh, road trips and technology were trying to conspire against us yesterday, but we dominated admirably. So we're, we we're back. I'll be <laughs> a little earlier for Pacific time, but it's okay. And minus one cup of coffee, right? We both, I feel like we both are at a deficit <laughs> with coffee. <laughs> I am. I am not as, uh, not as well caffeinated as I typically am, but that's okay. I will rally. Um, and, uh, and I'm sure you will too. So look, I, I am, um, I've been really looking forward to this conversation for a number of reasons, but one of them is that I'm always talking to folks about the importance of intentionality, like, you know, being intentional about things and trying to find, and I've been very like hot on the virtue of magnanimity lately. So like the, the idea that you're made for greatness, like that's one of God's calls, like we're made for greatness and like discovering that. And I, I, I look at you and the work that you're doing and intentionality and magnanimity is something that I see even from the outside without even talking to you because you started this, uh, you know, One Girl Revolution, which is a, uh, a podcast and social media platform that really focuses on encouraging all women and girls to see their true value, their purpose, their power to transform the world, their mission. That, that's the whole idea of magnanimity. And I look at that, and I'm like, well, you know, she gets it, at least from the ex uh, on the exterior side. So, you know, kudos for that as a starting point. Thank you so much. And that's such a beautiful way to talk about One Girl Revolution. And I think that's such a beautiful way for all of us to look at, look at our own lives. And, you know, I started One Girl Revolution because I felt like there was such a need in the world for every person, not just women and girls. I, of course, focus on women and girls because I felt like there was a need in that specific area um, to be elevated and to be reminded that we are as unique as our fingerprints and that we have a purpose, that God chose us for a unique purpose that no one else can do, a mission that no one else can do. And so um, we have a responsibility to own that, to embrace that, to find, figure out what it is. I mean, I've done so many different things in my life that have led me to doing One Girl Revolution. And looking back, I never could have even like guessed that this is where I would be now. Um, but I think that's the beauty of the journey of life and our faith journeys. And, you know, we should always be growing and, and evolving. So um, so thank you so much for sharing, saying that about One Girl Revolution, because I think you're right on. You do have this kind of tapestry of experiences that are pretty interesting, right? You kind of worked in the telecom industry. You were worked in politics. You lived overseas. You studied theology. You've been like, you've done like all this stuff. And and so you do have this this patchwork quilt kind of, uh, you know, background, which I always think is really interesting. And it's the kind of the way that the Holy Spirit prepares us for the world, right? But um I guess yeah. when you think about 
you know, this mission that you're on and helping in this, in this case, girls and women recognize that when you look out there and think of, you know, the obstacles that exist that maybe prevent women and girls or make it a little or, or maybe mute the ability to hear this great mission or understand this, like, what do you think, like, what are the things you run into? as the reasons why that occurs when it does? Yeah, so I think one of the big reasons why I even started One Girl Revolution is I started seeing different things happening in Washington, D.C. I'd studied politics and PR and media. I was working in media for six years in D.C., and I felt like so often women weren't being heard. They weren't being listened to. Um, anytime that they were being interviewed in a on TV or on the radio, it was like you have uh, three minutes to tell your story, and then the media... And sometimes it's not their fault. You know, they have certain things that they have to cover. They have a short amount of time that they need to cover things. They end up cutting that three minutes down to 15 seconds. And then it turns out to be a story that this woman or girl like never even intended to tell. Like it wasn't their story. It was some aspect of the story that the media kind of latched onto. So I started seeing that. And then I started thinking about kind of bigger scale, wider scale, like what are things in our world that kind of mute the voices or... Um, marginalized people or, you know, people that are forgotten about. I mean, there's so many different demographics of people and we all can feel that way sometimes, especially in the world of social media, we can feel forgotten about. We see all of our friends hanging out, going out to dinner and we weren't invited um, or, you know, just totally forgotten about. And so I started just identifying stories that really inspired me. And I thought if I could highlight stories, um, it would empower and inspire other people to look at their own life and find their voice and find their purpose. So I think there are a lot of things that are that are working against against um, our voices being heard and our stories being heard and also us um, really embracing who we are as individuals. I think social media is one of the greatest gifts, but it's also one of uh, the, the biggest um crosses, I guess, in a way that we have to carry. Um, I think that it can be such a tool, but it can also be um, such a determinant, like it can keep us away from actually like owning our purpose and getting us distracted. I like even found myself this morning, like scrolling through Instagram. And in reality, like I shouldn't be on Instagram, just scrolling, like go onto social media with a purpose. Like I have something to say. I want to look up something, but be more intentional back to the word that you brought up earlier be very intentional about how we're using social media and let it be an actual tool instead of, um, you know, instead of keeping us away from our purpose or a distraction. And so, um, you know, we have that going on politics. I mean, when I was living in DC, that was another thing I felt like so often, uh, everybody, but I focus on women and girls. So I felt like women and girls were being so politicized in all things. And so, Um, I really wanted to focus on our commonality. And so I think if we can really focus on our commonality, it will um, it will help us see our own value um, and help us see the value of others and not be in competition with people, but actually just embrace one another and work together. I remember when we talked earlier, too, and maybe you can kind of touch on this. You talked about at one point in D.C., you know, the role that you were kind of playing, you were like the Catholic girl in PR. You were like this and this, you know, um, people knew who you were and knew a little bit about you, but you weren't, or the, the sense I got from your comment was that maybe you weren't doing, you know, weren't sort of living a, I guess, fully integrated Catholic life or something like that. I mean, that's the sense that I got. Maybe I'm completely wrong, but you had this sort of moment of in- inflection, at least that's what I recall, with, um, 
the Women's March in D.C. And then it was sort of following that that you're like, you know what, I need to do something. Like, this is part of my magnanimity, part of my mission, part of what I need to do is like really, you know, consider what the platform is or what the approach is to do this this thing that I've been inspired to do. But was that Women's March like a, a particular moment in the chronology that you think was meaningful as it relates to to this journey? Yeah, I think there were many moments for sure, but that was a very big one because that was the first time I was living in D.C., um, doing press for a lot of different organizations. And I remember standing at the the Women's March. I went to the Women's March with a bunch of friends and from a pro-life perspective to make sure that the pro-life voice was being heard. You know, I, when it first started percolating, when the Women's March first started percolating and I was seeing stuff on Facebook, I remember having this moment of thinking, oh my gosh, like imagine if all women, no matter who they are, no matter where they're from, no matter what their issue is, quote unquote, their issue, right? Like we all have a thing that we care the most about. And, you know, some people it's pro-life, other people might be more interested in education or monetary policy or whatever your thing is. And especially being in DC, I was like, wow, this is amazing. Like imagine if women traveled from all over the country, all over the world to come together and supported one another. And like, even just like saw each other as human beings and said, like, even if I disagree with you on something, let's stand together and like, let's be a voice. And of course, the Women's March became very politicized and they excluded yeah. different women. They were like, you can't come. Like it became this very exclusive club. And I remember standing in this sea of people and just reflecting on that moment, like what it would be like if we actually had all come together and been like, you know, if you're pro common core education, you can stand here. If you're against it, you can stand here. If you're pro-immigration, you know, against whatever, whatever your thing. And I know there are a lot of facets to the issues that I'm mentioning as well, but um, no matter where people felt that we could stand together and that didn't happen. I know that some people had mm. the, had the experience of like, I have friends who went to the women's March and they were like, Oh, it was so amazing. We all came together. And I was like, I didn't feel that. And I know so many people that didn't feel that, that actually felt like we weren't welcome and our voices weren't um, so weren't allowed there. Um, that our our beings weren't. We weren't even allowed to be standing there. If they had known, if they knew who we were, um, we, we'd be kicked out. And so that was kind of a big turning point for me. I, I I have so many friends from so many different backgrounds. I've you know grown up in a. I grew up in a family where my parents taught us to love every single person, even if it was somebody that was you know terribly cruel to us or um, we disagreed with politically or whatever. I come from a very diverse. Uh, extended family, and we all love one another and support one another. And so I think that the Women's March definitely played a big role in me wanting to start One Girl Revolution and being so intentional about the fact that I want to focus on commonality. So we overall stay away from politics. Of course, political things come up. Um, people can share their faith journey, but I really try to keep it as mainstream as possible. And, you know, people's faith can definitely play a role in who they are as people and what they care about. So um, I kind of leave it to the different guests and the different people that I cover to take it wherever they want with regards to that. But I really want to focus on on bringing women together. And I want it to be uh, a, support, a supportive place um, where women can share their authentic stories. It's evident in the in the material and the content and the stories that you're helping to create that that idea of solidarity, which is really what you're describing, right? And that's not. Um, I know that you don't feel this way personally. That's not at the expense of other 
important values, but it's what you're choosing to emphasize. And I think it's actually really needed right now because there is a lot of factioning, a lot of kind of dividing, separating, you know, and being perfectly frank, even among, you know, communities of faith. I find this all the time where people have a sense perceived or real that because their maybe their jam is maybe more the moral issues of the church or the pro-life issues or whatever it is i call it their jam right that's like their thing and i love that i affirm that that's me like i'd put myself in that category but consequently because that's kind of my jam when i think of like incarceration or how the church deals with the immigrant or how the church may deal with other aspects of which there is teaching. It's sort of like, wait a minute, that's a, there's a little bit of suspicion towards that. So this idea of focusing on solidarity, talking to people, meeting people where they are across a broad spectrum of things, like that's a great thing. I affirm that. Frankly, that's Catholic, right? <clears throat> the way you were brought up sounds very Catholic to me. Um, but you see this reflected in, in your work. Just one example for those people who don't know, you have a an Emmy Award nominated uh, documentary called The Girl Inside, which is a short doc, but it's a beautiful one. And it, it shows the what effectively I would call sort of a ministry of a woman who goes to incarcerated other incarcerated to incarcerated women and tells them the power of story and the power of, of sort of revealing who they are inside. It's beautifully done, but it's the kind of thing that frankly, I could see very secular audiences going and saying, oh, this is cool. I affirm this. I like I believe in social justice, et cetera. Or I could see somebody who has a really deep understanding of the theological background behind the idea of visiting the prisoner going like, yeah, I affirm this. I really, I, I really see this. So it's, I look at that content and that story and say, this is an example of the kind of sentiment that you just described, right? Of like really locking arms, bringing people together in a shared experience to, to, to discover something new. Yeah. And Deacon Charlie, that's exactly it. Like even that's what, that's what gets me stoked. Like I get so excited about stories like that where it's so multifaceted like a catholic audience could look at the girl inside and um you know dr Dolora biaggi she talks about how um this idea of how can you move beyond something that you've done or that's happened to you if you don't know how to talk about it to me Mm. that's confession right like that could be Mm. from a catholic perspective it could be so catholic but then on the flip side what I really wanted to accomplish is pulling the curtain back and saying, this is a forgotten about population. Women are the fastest growing population in jail and prison. Why is that? And women, like there's so many different things you could break down from it too. Like um, women, there's always some exterior motive. So like men, no offense, but like, they'll just like decide to rob a bank, you know, one day. And with the women, there's always like, women, they're, they're trying to feed their kids or there's some exterior, it's like a fascinating thing. And I think that's also like interesting to think about with regards to women, like we're fascinating creatures and to really yeah. kind of peel, start peeling back the layers. And so it is, it's a short documentary, it's 10 minutes, but just to give people a snapshot of like, this is what, these are the human beings that are in incarcerated, you know, and I've stayed in touch with a couple of the women they've reached out to me, which is amazing. Cause I walked out of jail that day, never thinking that I would see them again or being able to talk to them because obviously with privacy laws and all that kind of stuff, the, the jail couldn't give me like their information, but um, I only knew their first names. Like that was crazy, mm. like sitting in that room, but we shared such a powerful life moment. We'll never, none of us will ever forget that day. Um, and obviously through the documentary, we've been able to, to share it with others, but um yeah, getting to know these women and like saying like, they're not, they don't just deserve to be in jail. Like there's something, who are they as people and who are these individuals? And 
after we released the girl inside, it was interesting because one of the biggest, uh, biggest kind of things that people said at first, especially my friends, they were like, well, I wanted to know more about the women. And I was like, Oh, that's Mm -hmm. interesting. Like, of course, like I'd love to do a two hour long documentary about these women. Like I want to know more. What was interesting is people just wanted to know what they did to end up in jail in prison. And, um, to me, that was never important. I, I was like, I want to know who you are as a person. Like, of course you did something, all the women, um, you know, knew, recognized that they deserved to be there, but they were like, I, you are a person beyond anything that you've done. And again, that's very Catholic, right? Like we, we are more than the worst thing that we've ever done. Um, and so, yeah, it just was a fascinating experience and I hope everybody who's listening checks it out because, um, it'll really open your eyes and get you to think. And I've watched it at this point. I've watched it thousands of times. And I still, every time I watch it, I still get choked up because it's so powerful at the end, these women sharing their lives and their stories. And um, every single time I take something else away from it, and it gets me to look at my own life in a different way. It's interesting how people you <clears throat> sort of fixate on the on the the kind of causal part of it, right? To your point, it's like, well, what these women do to get into prison? And I understand that because it's a sort of an element of curiosity. But if you think about it from sort of a Catholic theological perspective, right? L- prison to me is almost like the physical manifestation of the idea of temporal punishment for sins, right? We all have it. In other words, if we sin and we break away from God, even after we repent, there's damage that's been done that we have to like contend with, right? Whatever that is. Maybe it's a broken relationship. Maybe it's a broken window. Maybe it's a, I don't know, whatever it is that that actually happens. So we have this kind of temporal punishment that we have to contend with, even if we're forgiven. Same thing, like prison sort of a physical manifestation of that. So in a way, we all should be very conscious of the idea of the prison experience, but it doesn't remove, take away, subtract, eliminate, erase, like the, the idea of who we are, of the person that we are. Father Greg Boyle, who runs uh, Homeboy, Ministri- uh, Homeboy Industries out here in L.A., one of his lines is, you know, you are not your worst mistake, which you just touched on at a sort of a, a spin on that, which is exactly true. And thanks be to God for that, right? Because if we were, I mean, how many things have people done, maybe in this audience right now, maybe you, certainly me, that under different circumstances could have gotten me thrown in jail or ended up, or me getting killed or some accident I nearly missed or whatever, you know what I mean? We're always at the edge of that. There's always the opportunity. And what we get to experience when we go into a prison setting like that is people who are visibly living out that kind of temporal punishment, but it doesn't take away their humanity. And I think that's what your, what your picture, what your documentary actually reveals. Mm, yeah. And, and one thing, Deacon Charlie, I remember sitting, I had never been in a jail before, ever before. And it took me nine months to get clearance um, to take this film crew in there. Behold, they're amazing. And they were like, hey, if you ever get a chance to if you find a story that you feel like needs to be on film, let us know and we'll see if we can work out some sort of collaboration. And um, anyways, I'd never been in a jail before. So I'm a little bit nervous because I'm like, what's going to happen? And a little bit nervous because we didn't even know who was going to be in the room. So the jail mm. didn't even tell us until literally they were walking down the hallway. So we didn't know who exactly from Dr. Biagi's class was going to sign up to come. And I remember sitting in this circle and it, this kind of touches back to, I guess, the women's march in a way. I remember sitting in that circle and looking at these women and our lives were very different, right? Like our upbringings were very different. And just, we were sharing stories. The first question that Dr. Biagi asked all of us was, what was your first memory of play? And to me, that's so simple, but it's like, 
Mm. We all have the same stories, right? Like I made mud pies and so did one of the women that was in the circle, you know, when we were little and there was like a commonality there. And I remember sitting there and thinking to, to your point, I, this, I was one step away from Cook County. Like I'm one step away. We're always one step away. You think about, you know, if I had had different friends or, you know, I had friends that were troublemakers and, you know, ended up hanging out with them at the wrong time, being in the wrong place at the wrong time. And there are so many stories like that, not to justify it, but there's so many people that, you know, they have a boyfriend or a friend or somebody else or some other thing going on that lands in there. And I just remember sitting there and thinking like, I am these women and they are me, you know, we are all similar in that. And I think it's important for all of us to look at that as we are not better than, than other people. Everybody in this day and age, you know, we, we all have struggles and things that we're dealing with. I know addictions are through the roof, especially with COVID and everything. And, you know, people all, we all have addictions. I have an addiction to sugar, which I'm trying to break during Lent, (laughs) you know, different things. And there's, Mm -hmm. there's a commonality there. Um, And so I think we need to focus on that more. Yeah. I think the other thing that that the film reveals and more broadly, um, you know, One Girl Revolution does as well is this idea of feminine genius. And I I wanted your thoughts on this. Now, on one level, you've got sort of the popular cultural push for, you know, things that are objectively good, right? Equality, um, you know, dignity, equity, things like that. Like, hey, we want people to have a level playing field. We don't want discrimination, et cetera, et cetera. The downside of too pronounced a push around the sort of equality and sameness of, in this case, the sexes, is that you can oftentimes lose sort of the beauty of the differences, right? And so this idea of feminine genius, which sounds like it might be like a political term, but it's actually Catholic theology, right? This feminine genius is something that I don't see enough of, right? That you, you mentioned earlier, I know you were kind of joking, although you're right, about like a guy just deciding, I'm going to go rob the bank, and he does it, right? But there's, there's always like these layers of sort of things that are going behind the scenes for women, these other kind of like, you know, tributaries that are around this sort of decision-making. That's true, but that, if it is true, connotes a very, or describes a very real difference between the psyche and makeup of men and women, which obviously from a, from a kind of Christian theological perspective, we understand, but that's something that's more muted in the culture and in the world. And I wonder, as the leader of this, this media company and focus with the super intentional name, One Girl Revolution, right, how you kind of, uh, I don't know, parse that, that reality, right, of sort of the, the world's push for this sort of, you know, level playing field and sort of equality and sometimes even sameness with the idea that you believe that a woman's story in particular, this sort of feminine genius in particular, is important for the world to see. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a really interesting thing to think about. And, and I see that so often in, yeah, in the culture where um, people are fighting for, you know, women are fighting to be treated as equals. And I think that there are so many different instances where we can speak to that. I think every woman could tell you a story of how she legitimately was treated differently in the workplace or was in a meeting and talked over. I mean, we all have experiences like that. And so I think there are legitimate conversations that need to be happening and legitimate changes that need to happen. But I look over my lifetime, I'm 37 years old. I look over my lifetime Um, you know, my mom was born in 48 and I know her stories of, you know, growing up in the fifties and sixties and different things that were changing for women and the good things that were changing 
But then on the flip side, there were so many things that um, I guess the culture kind of tried to champion as women's issues. And I feel like so often, like women ended up kind of taking on or, or the culture started kind of pushing things that weren't necessarily that important. Um, and so I think that we kind of got distracted back to the social media. It's like, women kind of got distracted or the culture got distracted by all these little things. And we see it all the time on the media. Like I'm thinking about how women are treated um, in different countries and how, you know, what's going on in Afghanistan and um, so many things. Like if we're going to talk about women's issues, like we should be talking about how women are treated in, in different places and even different communities here in in our own country and um, how women don't have the same opportunities. But I truly believe that women have so much power and it's women that are changing the world through their lives every single day. And so I really try to focus on like intentionally, like how are women changing the world? And they're not being held back by some of these barriers. So many of the women that, that I've interviewed, they haven't just like sat back or, you know, even gotten involved in politics, right? Like they're not fighting it at that level. They are fighting it at the people level. And so they're like, I'm going to own my space I have this idea. Mm. I want to help those who are experiencing homelessness. I want to help those who are incarcerated. I'm not going to sit around and like wait. And it inspires me every single day, Deacon Charlie, because we all have those moments where it's like, I can't do this. Or like, I don't have the resources. I don't have funding to do. I mean, One Girl Revolution, I started it with nothing. Like I had no funding and people were telling me like, oh, start a nonprofit, raise $100,000 and then you can start it. And I was like, no, I'm so inspired by these women who have nothing. And they've just like fought their way through and figured out how to do it. And, um, you know, ask questions, ask the right people, um, jumped over, you know, jumped through every single possible hoop. And those are the women that are changing the world. And so I think back to your point about feminine genius, I truly believe that if women realize the power that they had to change the world and they owned it, they didn't sit around and, you know, complain or, mm. you know, say, oh, I can't do that. If we actually owned that power and figured out what our mission is, like what we were created to do, whether it's a small thing, maybe it's a small thing, like you are really good at handwriting little cards and you're going to make it part of your mission or ministry or whatever word you want to use to write cards to elderly people that might not, you know, be getting mail, right? Like I get too many bills in the mail. I, when's the last time you've gotten like a, a handwritten note? Like that can change someone's life. And so we should also Absolutely. be looking at, it doesn't have, we don't have to do the big things, right? Like you don't have to found an organization. You don't have to be the CEO of a company to make a difference. Like you can make a difference in the little ways just as much as the big things. Well, and you've hit on, on another monster principle, right, uh, which we can approach from from a Christian standpoint, but exists certainly more broadly, and that's the principle of subsidiarity, which, of course, is, I'm sure, is some on some level the one in One Girl Revolution, because what you've described, and I saw when your, when your doc came out, I know that Good Morning America uh, interviewed you, and, and you, in, in that piece, even though it was short, they show, they, they sort of illustrated these, and they had you speaking about these sort of like, hey, this little thing, if you're good at this, if you're good at this, just do that that thing. But we forget the importance of those contributions, right? The principle of subsidiarity, basically, for those who may not be, not be familiar, says that the person closest to the, to the thing, the problem, the opportunity, the, whatever it is, that's the person who, generally speaking, is called to that thing. So it's not this sort of outsider looking in. It's not this, let's build some giant thing, and then we can figure it out. It's really just begin now. 
And it's 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 in a, it's in a way that's another one of those things that we don't really hear a lot enforced in the popular culture. It's usually, you know, stories of entrepreneurs, the guy who started in his garage and now has a trillion dollar company, and like it's all this like massive undertakings, which are not in themselves bad, but it sort of overlooks all of these like you know little stitches in the quilt and the tapestry that's being made by God of which every one of us has that particular thing to do. Right, exactly. We all have something that we have to do. And um, there's that saying, fear is a dream killer. And I think a lot of times we don't end up Mm. even doing the little things because we're scared, right? Like, you know, you see somebody who is uh, experiencing homelessness on the street and you're scared that they might, I don't know, uh, steal from you, rob you, get in your car, whatever, whatever the thing is. Like fear keeps us from doing even the little things. And so that's what I love so much about all the different stories. We have over 140 episodes of the podcast, all different stories, all different backgrounds of women. Of course, the documentary is a totally different um, group of women, different stories. But my my favorite stories are oftentimes the little ones, you know, like the one that, you know, somebody just came up with an idea or they've made it their mission every Sunday to make a little extra um, dinner and deliver it to somebody in the neighborhood who might be having a hard time or the people during uh, the beginning of uh, the pandemic um, that were doing nice things for healthcare workers, because obviously healthcare workers were working 24 seven sometimes. And so people that were like, Hey, these are the healthcare workers. I know I'm going to deliver a gift basket to them. Those people were chain- changing the world through yeah. their little things. And so yeah, I just think we need to we need to find ways to fight through the fear or the uncertainty and just own our place in this world. And life is so short. I've been reflecting on that a lot lately. Um, I think the winter, especially a lot of people, you know, lose loved ones for whatever reason. It just seems like I was going to a lot of funerals and I was like, oh, my gosh, life is so short. And yeah. we can start our lives like at any point, too. So if you feel like you you don't know what your mission is, like now is the time to say, OK, what can I be doing? Even if it's a little thing and doing kind things for other people. And I've learned this so much through the work that I've done with one girl and getting to know all these amazing women. Sometimes they don't even know what the end goal is. And same with me. Like there, I never could have imagined the Emmy nomination. I never could have imagined good morning America. I never could have imagined so many of the things, the good things that happened with one girl revolution. But um, sometimes all you can do is put one foot in front of the other and say, I'm going to try this and see where it goes. And maybe it goes nowhere. Maybe it, but I, I did a couple of cool things and maybe helped a couple of people along the way. And then you figure out something else and just keep going. And Kate, we have a a lot of women who listen to this show. And if you were going to recap, maybe from your own experience, or maybe from the experience of the women's, the women that you've now come in contact in and helping them tell their stories, the kind of, um, you know, best practices or, things to be mindful of in helping to understand that mission or understand that small thing or, or better articulate like, Hey, here's my contribution that, that, that can be made to the world. Um, what are those things? Either, either what are the things that keep women from hearing that or understanding that or, 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 or developing that, that idea or the ways to find that mission or develop that mission or, or, or what have you, how, how did it work for you? Like how, you know, what are the things you did to arrive at that, at that notion? Yeah. Well, I think the things that hinder women is obviously fear. So I think there's a fear of, uh, what the future holds. I know for me, I was living in DC and 
pretty abruptly decided to move back to Michigan, didn't have a job back in Michigan, but I wanted to be closer to family. And I just felt really called, um, I guess is the best way to say I just felt so convicted that I was supposed to be in Michigan, I didn't know why, and uprooted my life in DC, moved back to Michigan. And I uh, started reading a book about the city of Detroit and Father Gabriel Richard wrote two phrases in Latin that are on Detroit's flag. Um, there is always hope and it will rise from the ashes. And I read those two phrases mm. and I was like, oh my gosh, I need to do something for women. Like that is the heart of One Girl Revolution. That is the heart of all women. I think that there is always hope. You think about the resilience of women, the power of women to rise above and move beyond things that and heal from so many of the things that they've experienced. Um, and then it will rise from the ashes. There's always hope and it will rise from the ashes. We rise from the ashes. And um, I, yeah, so I think there are so many things that hold women back. I think the, the, the noise of our world, the noise of social media, we can a lot of times compare ourselves to other people and see what other people are oh, doing yeah. and talk ourselves out of doing something because we're like, Oh, well, like, who am I? Like, who am I? And I believe that that's the devil talking. I don't think that, Absolutely. that, that um, you know, that is from God. That's, that's the devil trying to keep us from doing something. And we should be like, who, you know, yeah, I, I can do this. I can do this. And sometimes you have to do that self-talk or in prayer or meditation. I mean, there's so many different ways that people can refocus themselves. Um, but then finding your mission is figure out what you love to do. Like what fuels hmm. your heart like what fuels your life for me my love language is spending time with people so like i love spending time with people i love getting to know new people i could just if i could just build a career out of that that's what i would do if i could just all the time be spending time with people and looking at one girl i'm like oh my gosh that's actually kind of how it came to fruition because i'm like i want to get to know these people literally cold calling a lot of the women that i've had on but um, so many of the women that I've that I've come in contact with, maybe that's their maybe that's that's what drives them is getting to know people. Maybe they love to cook. So I interviewed a woman who spent her um, spent her uh, every penny she had um, during the pandemic to make lasagnas for people. And she would just wow. post on social media and no they call her the lasagna lady. She was like, if you need a meal, if your family needs a meal, just message me and I'll get you a lasagna. Healthcare workers made sure that they got a lasagna. And so it could be something as simple as that. You like to make lasagna or you love to bake. Like what are things, could you bake for um, a local shelter? Could you bake for um, your neighbors? Just anything that you can think of to just brighten people's day, writing little handwritten coat, uh, cards. Um, I'm thinking about uh, different organizations or, or women that have done coat drives. Like they've gotten their... Bible studies or their women's group or their book group, their book club, whatever. Um, hey, in the winter, let's collect jackets and we can do stuff all year round. Um, and it doesn't take a lot of money. Sometimes it's just saying yes to something. Um, or if you own a restaurant, say like a percentage of the, the proceeds on Tuesday night, some random night are going to go to support some local initiative or maybe they fund something. There's a, a winery here in Michigan that the um, Mackenzie Gallagher is her name and her family opened this winery. And then a couple months later, she was diagnosed with stage four cancer and mm. um, they were struggling. Like they were try trying to get this winery off the ground and Mackenzie ended up, she's cancer free. She came through it. Like it's amazing. And they dedicate um, the 
proceeds from some of their wine to support other families that might be struggling during cancer treatment. So there's so many innovative ways that people can make a difference. And sometimes it just starts with start with a little thing. So I would say if I had one thing to say to anybody who's listening, figure out what you love to do. And do that, like do it in a little way, even if it's just, you know, for one person and just start there and see where it goes. There's a, even a lesson from the secular world about this idea of starting small, right? In the, especially in the technology space, it's called minimum viable product, MVP. And it's, it's something that if you say in, you know, tech or marketing sectors, people like automatically know, and it just means, look, we have a basic idea. We start with the lowest form of what that idea is to see what kind of result we get, and then it kind of grows from there. But it's even in those places, it can start off small. And that's the thing is, generally speaking, we know what those things are that we love or that drive us. But we sometimes, we, we can listen to that voice that says, well, what's this going to do? This is so tiny. Look at the sea of problems that exist. And there's no chance this little thing can actually make that kind of a difference. But then when you look at examples, the women you featured, your own life, the work you're doing, and then more broadly, look at, you know, somebody like, uh, you know, St. Teresa of Calcutta, right? Mother Teresa, like literally lifting some poor person in a back alley. Nobody's watching. There's no camera on you. You're never going to hear about it. But like that little act, and yet, you know, decades after her, or yeah, decades after her death, we're still talking about this and the kind of impact she had, you know, on the world. And there's so many examples of that, but it's like, it's listening to that that initial inspiration and sort of following through and letting it build on itself, right? We have a tendency to look out into the future and go like, oh, well, I can't see it this 10 years from now, so therefore I won't start it. And it's so counterintuitive, right? Because there's something that you can, we can all do right now. And oftentimes we just don't take that step in actually doing it. Mm, yeah. Dr. Biagi, to point back to the girl inside, and this is something that's really stuck with me is she has a line that's actually that made it into the documentary. And she says, sometimes we need to quiet the voices inside in order mm. to figure out or, you know, hear the voices, hear the voice of what's telling us what to do, or like really find our own voice. We have to quiet those other voices. And so um, I reflect on that a lot. And it kind of comes up in my own in my own life where I'm like, okay, what, where is this coming from? Like, is this actually like a good because sometimes we can yeah. be talked out of something because we're getting, I know myself, I get so excited about some things. And then I'm like, okay, when I actually like stop and reflect on it, I'm like, okay, is this actually the right thing for me to be doing? Probably not. Um, but you know, we need to have those moments of quiet and pause. And another thing that I started doing too, once I started one girl, because I felt like everything in life just gets so loud and noisy and busy and I get busy, you know, life gets busy, especially, you know, people have family lives and friends and there's so much going on. So I started just like once a month. If I usually I try to do it once a month, I just go to a local coffee shop and just sit and be and get a fancy coffee um, and sit there and journal or write or come up with ideas. Like if there are things that I want to look up with regards to one girl, I just like sit and be and take those moments. And so I think we also need to mm. know, figure out like if you like to be outdoors, if that's where you like, you know, feel that peace, make it your, um, make it your, I want to say your mission, not your mission, but like make it, uh, make it a priority to go on a walk once a month and just be, don't bring your, don't bring your headphones with you. Don't bring your, um, books on tape, but just be, listen to nature. Or if you like to swim or kayak or, um, fish or, 
if you like to just be inside and be cozy and read, like find those moments where you can just be, because I think when we quiet those voices or we, even our own voice in our head, that's like going a million miles a minute. When we quiet those, that's when we really can figure out our purpose and what we're supposed to do at this moment in time. I remember that scene from the doc when Dr. Biagi said that, and you know, we all hear things in a different way, right? So for the women there, perhaps they were hearing it precisely as it was said, you know, quiet these other voices. Um, the way that I heard it was the principle of discernment, right? Which is, let's understand, you know, discern the spirits, as St. Paul said, right? So like, where is this, where is this voice calling, coming from? And when we hear voices that are either divisive or they sound like accusations, right? You're never going to do this. You can't make it. Why would you try? All that stuff. You know, from a Christian standpoint, we kind of understand and we can place where those voices come from, right? The division and accusation are the domain of... Of, of the devil, as you, said, as you said, it might not be him personally, but nevertheless, it's not inspired by anything good when we hear that. But it is true that through discernment, and discernment, generally speaking, happens in calm, happens in quiet. I just had uh, Father Michael Zimmerman on the show last week who leads the vocations office for the Archdiocese of Boston, and he's got this great video series that, that he's put out, and it talks a lot about that, right? The principle of of silence, of kind of being away from things, changing your typical active sort of, you know, day so that you can have that moment of reflection so that you can hear, right? And there are, you know, great mystics and theologians and others who have said that, you know, God's voice is not something you find in the silence. God's voice is silence, right? So it's like in those moments of quiet reflection, whatever they may be, where you quiet these different, these other inputs is when we can be hit by that inspiration, by that moment of clarity, by that moment of, of inspiration and imagination that, that close, that more closely aligns us to what our mission actually is. But it's a, it's a, it's definitely a lost art, this idea. And so I, I affirm what you're saying about just make it intentional, make it a priority, find that moment, coffee shop, desert, forest, beach, whatever it may be, so that you can actually be in tune with the way that we find out what we're supposed to do. Exactly, exactly. And I think don't put pressure on yourself too. I was thinking as you were you were speaking there, like, I think a lot of times in life, we want to see the end, right? So we want to know like how, but what happens? I remember being like in my 20s and all my like single girlfriends and I were like, but like, who are we going to end up with? Like, who's, who's our future husband? We're trying to like solve <laughs> this like puzzle. And in reality, it's like you kind of God, God's timing is perfect. And I think that's even with each of our missions, like don't feel like, okay, maybe you got married really young and then you were a stay-at-home mom. I see that a lot with the women that I'm interviewing too, where they were a stay-at-home mom and it's like, this is their new life. You know, now they they their kids are in school and they've found like a new purpose or a new mission or, you know, they founded an organization because now their kids are bigger. And so I think it's so the journey is just as important as the destination. And so as much as we can just be focused. And I think those those moments of calm, those moments of peace will also help us just be present to where we are right now in life and be open to whatever is coming next. Mm. You have a, a second documentary that's either coming out or about to come out or something in that. And I wonder in that story, is there, you know, a, was there a moment of quiet reflection, uh, pause, whatever you want to call it, either in the life of the subject of that doc documentary or in your own to determine that this was a story you wanted to tell? Mm, that's a great question. Yes. So the next documentary is coming out really soon, um, hopefully in April. 
um, is kind of our goal right now. And um, that story is interesting because we actually started filming it before The Girl Inside. So we actually went to Milwaukee. Mm. It features Caitlin Cullen, who is a, a young woman who opened a restaurant in one of the worst neighborhoods in Milwaukee. And she hires people that no one else will hire. Um, people coming out of jail and prison, people that are women that are pregnant, um, need a job, um, kids being targeted by drug dealers. I mean, anybody who just needs a, a shot, um, she gives them a chance and teaches them the food industry. If they want to get into, if they want to become a sous chef, she gives them opportunities there. If they want to get into management, she gives them opportunities within the restaurant. And so she's just like created this amazing place, um, this family of sorts. Um, it's called the tandem in Milwaukee. And I think that quiet moment, so her story got even more interesting. Like I said, we filmed before the girl inside, a whole lot of things happened. And we were like, oh, we have to get out, get the girl out, girl inside out first. Um, because COVID had hit, we had filmed it before um, COVID. So nobody, of course, is wearing masks in it. So um, Cook County encouraged us to get it out as soon as possible, just so whatever, there was there was clarity that people were like, oh, okay, they filmed it before um, COVID. And so uh, anyways, what's interesting about Caitlin's story is there was a moment of quiet and calm and it's March, 2020. So we filmed a couple of months mm. before uh, the pandemic hit and um, thought we were going to have this like great restaurant. Like that was the story. That was it. Like the story is she does this, has this amazing restaurant. She hires people that just need a chance. She's created this inc incredible um, place. She's, you know, been able to train hundreds of, of young people, get them jobs elsewhere. I mean, it's incredible what she's created. But then March 2020 hit. And of course, we know all restaurants shut down, everything shut down, our world shut down. And um, I remember seeing on Facebook that um, Caitlin was making meals and she was posted on Facebook and said, hey, if anybody needs a meal, we're not serving customers, you can't get takeout, but just message us or stop by the restaurant and we'll make sure that you get a meal. Or if you need five meals for your family, whatever you need, you just tell us. And of course, the meals that she made were gone in two seconds. And um, then she got people that were donating money. Other restaurants jumped on board and were making meals to help. This woman ends up feeding 115,000 people during the pandemic. And wow. um, what she like, that was like the next chapter of the tandem story. And what's amazing, Deacon Charlie, is we actually got to go back. Um, so we filmed the first part of the bustling restaurant. So it's almost going to be a snapshot of a, a restaurant in the pandemic. Um, and uh, so, yeah, she's she had this like very quiet moment. And I remember remembering her restaurant at its height when everybody's jam packed into the restaurant, drinking cocktails at the bar, eating her amazing fried chicken, whatever. And then snap forward to March, 2020 and beyond. And the restaurant is quiet and desolate. And um, so we have that we filmed there too. And so, um, but I think it goes back, like that story is so important to me too, because it goes back to what I was saying before about how, like the journey is just as important as the destination. And like, I don't think that Caitlin could have even fathomed when she opened her restaurant that we would have been hit by COVID and her restaurant would have been hit by that. Um, but how she innovated and how she just looked around her in her own neighborhood. Like she didn't do anything on a, you know, she wasn't shipping meals to Texas or um, California. She was just in her own neighborhood. Who needs to be served? How can we serve them? How can we take care of our people? 
And um, that's just a powerful story. So I'm really excited to share that one with everyone. Yeah, I can't, I can't wait to see it. And, and we haven't talked much, much about this, but we're sitting here talking about stories um, and their importance, but we haven't necessarily identified what it is that is powerful about stories. I, my, my friend Megan Finnerty, um, who ran for many years the Storytellers Project at USA Today, um, you know, I think she cataloged, I don't know, maybe it was like 5,000 stories. And it was like a simple format where people would just walk up. It was initially live and then became virtual during COVID. But you just walk up to a microphone and, and share a five-minute story. It was like a story, not a presentation, not a pitch, not a testimony, not a witness. It was a story. And the whole idea was really to flex that kind of story muscle in, in a culture and in a world that can oftentimes, you know, lose the sense of story unless it's some giant blockbuster, you know, superhero Avengers kind of kind of thing, right? Um, and and it, it was a really powerful reminder to me about just the power, because uh, I, I did some work with her, but it was a really powerful experience to me about just the power of story, because you could have chosen to do One Girl Revolution in a lot of different ways. It could have been tools, it could have been resources, it could have been... I don't know, grants or whatever, the the mechanism. But you really chose story as a mechanism for that. Why? I think that just through my, and that's a really great question and a really great thing to reflect on. For me, I think that's how I even got into PR and media um, stories. I have always been fascinated by stories. I'm Irish American, so my family obviously loves a good story. And so I kind of grew up with storytelling, but I see the power of stories, you know, how if you can tell a story and even in, even in the media, even on um, radio shows, podcasts, like I just love when you find a good story that just moves you. Um, I think that it can change people's lives. I think that, and we all have seen a movie or a documentary or heard a story that we never forget, right? It just like sticks with us. It might not have, maybe it changed our lives, but maybe it didn't. Maybe it just has kind of stuck with us. And, um, so I have stories like that in my life. And then when I started kind of looking around and trying to figure out, cause in the beginning stages of one girl revolution, I did think about that. I was like, could it be a school program for girls in, in school to help them find their purpose and their passion? Of course it could, it could be a lot of different things. It could be grants to support other organizations. But the more I reflected on it, I just started recognizing and looking around too, like looking at other media outlets, there wasn't a space for women to share women and girls to share their authentic stories. And what I love about podcasts is it's the more long form, right? So um, women can take as long or as short as they want. Um, and I'm, of course, like helping them curate their stories and tell their stories and asking the right questions. And um, my PR background prepared me for that. But I just I believe in the power of story. And I believe in the power of our stories. You know, there are so many mm. things in our lives that we've experienced, even difficult things that people have gone through. And we don't always see the why, like why it happened, like why did it happen to us? And sometimes there isn't, maybe there isn't a why. But for me, and I've shared this story before, I you know started One Girl Revolution, didn't really know like, why is it? Like, why, why do I care about the stories? Why do I care about women's voices so much? Of course, like I'm a woman. You know, I'm interested in women's stories. I work in the media. I want to create the space for women to tell their stories. But like, where's my own personal connection? Like, what's the driving force? Because people would ask me sometimes, like, why? Like, why did you do this? Why Why did you do it in this way? And Deacon Charlie, probably about six months ago, all of a sudden I had this like epiphany moment where I started thinking about when I was a little girl, 
Um, I was born with a really rare immune deficiency called Job syndrome. My sister also has it. Um, and jo- it's Job from the Old Testament. And um, when we were both diagnosed, there were only 25 documented cases in the world. Now, today, wow. flash forward, there are only 250, 250 cases documented throughout the world. And my sister and I, in the same family, both in Michigan, like happen to have this, this um, syndrome. And there are a lot of different facets to it. But one of the things is you get terrible, you can get terrible skin infections. So as a little kid, I had terrible, terrible eczema. My little face was red. You look at all my little, even baby pictures. I have like little red face. Um, I would itch my hair out as a little kid. So oftentimes like in, you know, when I was five or six, people would think that I was going through chemo treatment as a little kid because I didn't really have a lot of hair. I'd itch it all out. And my mom is such a great mom. She would like try and braid it and make me feel really beautiful and like get cute little outfits for me. So I never felt like I stuck out. And I was this feisty little kid, Deacon Charlie. And my parents would joke when I was four years old that I was either going to be the CEO of a Fortune 500 company or the dictator of a small <laughs> nation because I was like this feisty kid. I was very opinionated. I would like lead my siblings around. You know, I was like the little boss of the family. And then I got into school and I became a completely different person. Like I wouldn't talk in class. I didn't want to draw attention to myself. I wouldn't raise my hand. Mm. I just like wanted to be invisible. And I think so many people probably can relate to this when they were little kids that they were bullied um, or, you know, look, we all look different. Right. Um, And some people still deal with it now in their adult lives. You know, it doesn't people are, there are always going to be mean people in the world and there are always going to be things we have to deal with. But Um, I just had this epiphany like six months ago where I was like, oh my gosh, I stopped talking in class. Like I know what it feels like not to have a Mm. voice. I know what it feels like to be forgotten about. I know what it feels like to be marginalized. And thankfully, like my parents were really um, clued into what was going on. And so they ended up figuring out a bunch of different things to like help me feel confident again and find that, find that girl inside, find the little girl inside that I was created to be. And so I think at the heart of everything that I'm doing and everything that I care about and why I care about One Girl Revolution and why I care about stories is we all have a voice. We all have a story to tell. And we're the only people that can tell that story and we're the only people that can live that story. And so um, that's what that's what drives me. And that's why I'm doing what I'm doing with One Girl. Yeah, I think it's awesome. And I think that you helping to you know give women and girls that platform to share their voice through story with the world is really important, particularly particularly now, um, both because of the democratization of how we can share stories and the accessibility that all this new media provides us, but also because the world, I think, desperately, and maybe our country specifically, needs to hear those stories. The stories are like this middle ground where people can come together, right? And of course, we perceive it all these stories in a different way. But nevertheless, we're having a shared experience, right? Which we're like, we're running at a deficit of shared experiences in, you know, in the last uh, several years in our country. And so I think it gives it has this sort of value add effect, right? Where it's good in its own right and it's good for its own sake, but it also has this kind of, I don't know, network effect or amplification effect where it actually helps to be part of, 
a salve or a solution to a broader issue that the country is experiencing. So, you know, we are, <clears throat> you know, myself personally and here at the show, super bullish on what you're doing and, um, you know, very, very happy that you're out there helping to tell these stories are really compelling. Looking forward to the next doc. I know we were, we got to get you on your way because you've got more stories to tell. But really quickly before we get to our our final segment here, wait what? Um, talk a little bit about you know how folks can get in touch with you. What's coming next? Talk about the show that you have. Like give them the the sort of facts and figures on on how to keep track of what you're up to. Yeah, I appreciate that. So the One Girl Revolution podcast, you can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, anywhere you listen to podcasts, and it's the number one. Girl Revolution. So people can just search that, um, listen to it. We have over 140 episodes, all different stories, all different backgrounds. I tell people if they're listening for the first time, just find it, you subscribe, um, but then just scroll through and look for a story and listen. Um, these women are amazing. And we have so many other stories coming down the pipeline, which I'm really excited about. So um, yeah, we have tons of episodes coming up this coming year. Uh, people can go to our website, onegirlrevolution.com. So the number onegirlrevolution.com. On there, they can find the Good Morning America segment. They can find The Girl Inside. They can find all of our podcast episodes, stories, and so much more content there. Um, and then we're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at onegirlrevo, R-E-V-O. And then um, on YouTube, people can check out. We have a lot of our podcast episodes on YouTube. And then The Girl Inside is there. That's where we'll release the second documentary, um, which hopefully will be coming out in April. That's awesome. Yeah, we'll include all that information in the show notes, but I definitely encourage everyone to take a listen. Uh, certainly watch the documentary, um, and but but take a listen to uh, to your show and to these stories that you're that you're really helping to share because they really are amazing. And Kate, you know, my prayer for your continued prosperity and all of this work. I think it's really really needed, and um, and it's a very very use use the word hope earlier. I think it does give um, a lot of hope to a lot of people in whatever circumstances they may be. So, you know, God bless you on all of this work and uh, and continued prosperity in it. Thank you so much. Thank you. And just on that note, like these women, if you if you're ever having a bad day, go and listen to these women and their stories. It will give you so much hope. And and these are stories that we don't see on the media. I feel like when you turn on the news or even on social media, there's so much darkness and um, our world is really hurting in so many ways. So it's just, it's beautiful. It will inspire you um, to make a difference in the world and it will inspire you to grab your um, mission uh, by the horns and, and go for it. Amen to that. Very cool. So Kate, are you ready to play? Wait, what? I'm, I'm ready. As ready as you're ever going to be. All right. So uh, we didn't actually talk about yeah. this, Kate, but I do know that you have an interest in rowing in crew some type of interest or maybe you participated in it at some point i have no idea but nevertheless it exists somewhere so yeah. i thought that you'd be perfect to answer yeah. this first question so here it goes kate saint warhol is the patron saint of rowing he was a belgian priest born in the 12th century who in his ministry rode throughout the Mediterranean Sea, spreading the word of Jesus's teaching. Now, legend has it that he was actually murdered by his nephew, ironically also a priest, and his nephew killed him with a blank. What is the blank? This is a fill in the blank question. Ooh, um, like a skull, the skull, like the oar? The oar, yeah. Absolutely. I learned, I learned skull, the or, okay. 
I learned, full disclosure, I learned in DC on the Potomac because I was like, I'm just a woman who's like, I want to learn different things. And so one summer I learned how to skull. And so, okay, cool. Or Awesome. That's great. I did not expect you to get that. So very, very good. (laughs) You, you are, you are off to a great start. One for one. All right. Question number two, Kate. Now we know, and you've talked about it already, uh, about your hometown, Motor City, Detroit, Michigan, great town. So you should easily answer this question. Which of these is false about your hometown of Motor City? Is it A, Detroit is the only city in the contiguous United States where you can look south and see Canada? Is it B, the modern bullet, which is fired from a revolver or pistol, was invented in Detroit? Or is it C, true to its Motor City roots, the first mile of concrete road in the world was laid down in Detroit? Which of those is false about Detroit? Mm. I don't know. A B? B. You are right again. Yes, correct. The modern bullet was not invented in Detroit. (laughs) But in fact, believe it or not, the bulletproof vest was invented in Detroit in the 1960s by a pizza delivery guy who apparently was shot up in a number of different deliveries and decided to do something about it. So he built a bulletproof vest. But um, yeah, well done. It is true that Detroit is the only uh, city in the U.S. where you can look down, you can look south and see Canada because some of the interesting geographical features of, of Detroit. And it is also true that the first mile ever of concrete road was laid down in Detroit in 1909. So there you go. Well done. You're off to a amazing so start. Cool. Kate. Awesome. <laughs> All right. Very last question, Kate. And this is folks who know this show know there's always a time machine question. So here it goes. And this is an interesting one. So just last week, Kate, Pope Francis issued a new Vatican constitution, which, among other things, introduces a change that would allow any baptized Catholic to lead one of the departments in the Roman Curia the departments that have for centuries only been headed by clerics, namely bishops. So with that in the background, you get to travel forward in time to Rome in the year 2042, so exactly a couple couple decades from now, and there you get a chance to meet the lay woman who is now the head of the new Dicastery for Education and Culture. You get an opportunity to advise her on strategy in her new role as the person responsible for helping to advance a Catholic culture for the universal church. What advice, Kate, do you give this woman? Ooh, that that's a great question. Um, uh, I think that my advice would be, and this is something I've been thinking about a lot lately, and the church could probably do more of it right now too, is focus on the catechism, like really read the catechism and spend time with the catechism. And so I think even in all education, I even think about RCIA, but in the school system, people should be reading the catechism um, Mm. of the church. And I think that's such a, that really should be the bedrock of of everything um, in education and and even in our, in our faith journeys too. Awesome. Well, you, you achieved a rare feat on this show, Kate, you have a perfect score. So uh, congratulations on that. It bodes well for you and for, uh, you know, for your future. So uh, well, well done on that. But um, on a serious level, again, thank you so much. (laughs) Thank you for being on the show. What a great privilege it is uh, to have you on and and continued, uh, you know, blessings and prosperity to you, Kate. 
Deacon Charlie, thank you so much for having me on. I'm so grateful and I look forward to continuing to stay in touch and following everything you're doing. And if you're listening to Kate and I right now talk about these stories, you should subscribe. You should share this episode with someone else who can benefit from it. Maybe that, uh, that woman or young girl in your life who you want to get that moment of inspiration and to hear that calling and take that next step in her particular mission. So share this show, help it to grow, help it to expand, help it to reach more people. And we'll see you again next time on Living the Call. If you enjoyed this episode of Living the Call, please remember to subscribe and give us a five-star review. Tell someone you love about the show and spread the word. Living the Call is available on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and anywhere else you listen to podcasts. You can learn more about the organization behind the show by searching for the Catholic Association of Latino Leaders on any social platform or by going directly to call-usa.org. That's call-usa.org. Living the Call is produced by Manu Kasten and Diego Carranza and our friends at Juan Diego Networks. God bless you and thank you for listening.